Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm Spencer Martin. I'm here with Andrew Vance from the Choose the Hard Way podcast. Andrew, do you want to say a little word about your podcast before we get into our Tour de France wrap up and our, I guess our final installment? It's very sad, but it's our final installment of this year's tour collaboration crossover podcast. Yeah, for sure. If you love the Tour de France and professional bike racing and what it takes to make it happen, I think you'll really enjoy my podcast, Choose the Hard Way. My guests share stories about how hard things build stronger, more resilient people. And in fact, today, I just dropped a new episode with filmmakers Jill Yesko and Allie Davis. They are making a documentary about the original Women's Tour de France that ran from 1984 to 1989. And you can find links to that episode on all platforms at choosethehardway.com. And Choose the Hard Way is available everywhere that you listen. And you can also find me and the show at Vance and at Hardway Pod on social. So please give us a listen, a like, a subscribe, a follow, share it with a friend. It's a great podcast. I highly recommend listening. There'll be a link in the show notes. Actually, the Tour de France Women's State Street just wrapped up while we were recording this intro. Looks like a cracker. I might have to go back and watch it. I'm curious to see how this panned out. Well, Andrew, what were what are your big picture takeaways from this tour? Jonas Vingegaard ended up crushing, destroying everyone. Um, Tadej Pogacar. What's crazy to me is these gaps. Tadej Pogacar a, a good amount behind Jonas Vingegaard, and then it's like the the Mariana Trench. It just drops off. Like you have Garrett <laughs> Thomas at around eight minutes back, and then even behind, like the gap between Garrett Thomas and David Gadu in fourth is similar to the gap between Garrett Thomas and Jonas Vingegaard in first. It's just like absolutely mind-blowing time gaps. What were, I mean, and, and not to mention the stage-to-stage stage, stage to stage racing was maybe the best I've ever seen. Um, could be recency bias, but it was just a very brutal hard race in general. What are your takeaways coming out of this? Best Tour de France I've ever watched. The main question that I have, because it's always about a question, it's about a question about what's next. Could Jonas have done this without a Wout and without a without a Primos? <laughs> that's right? my first question. That's mine. Yeah. <laughs> that's okay. Mine, no, no, that's but... mine. That's mine. Let's go there. That's <laughs> that's my first question. And then, gosh, I've got a lot of other questions. I'm even thinking about the final stage, Champs Elysees. We know that Wout is a, he's a killer. Forget the shark from Messina. We're talking about Wout Van Art, somebody with a hunger, just a bloodlust for winning and he sits up so that he can do the you know the hands on the shoulder right across the line i guess like what's going on there spencer yeah i found that to be i would love to unpack this i have questions so you're saying best tour de france ever it's funny to say this daniel free daniel free bay daniel free he's probably my favorite cycling writer who doesn't write about cycling very much anymore he did just write a book about jan ulrich but he rates Every tour in the last 20 years by wine glasses. It's very rare to get a five glass rating. 2003 did. He rated this a five glass wine. That's the first time I've ever seen him do that since I've been following him. Um, 2003 was exciting. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. On the stage to stage, stage to stage basis, this might be the best of all time that I've seen at least. So I, I, I don't think that's hyper, hyperbole for you to say that. We just saw like a level of racing and an intensity that I've never seen before. I mean, think of how many soft breakaways that we had. Like B&B hotels tried to get two guys into the move with Magnus Court in Denmark, which is not hilly. 
on the first stage and they got dropped on a climb. And like that was kind of the last we saw of a team trying to just noodle into a breakaway. Like every break was really hotly contested. It was like an hour of all out riding to get into it. And it was just the world's strongest riders in those moves. Like you think about Mads Pedersen on stage was at stage 13 when he won out of the break. I mean, that was a, it was like Filippo Ghana, Stefan Kuhn, Mads Pedersen, Fred Wright. Those are strong, strong riders. Like this, there's no soft breaks. It was like a classic every day. I thought it was amazing. I've, I was a little shocked that I was reading the British. I feel like British cycling riders tend to be kind of curmudgeons, um, the kind of hate on people who aren't British, but I was a little shocked at how much it was like, well, Jonas only won this because of Wout. I mean, Wout certainly helped. He really helped on the cobbled stage. But let's not forget that Jonas Vinegard, the final gap is not totally indicative of what he was ahead of because he sat up on the Champs-Élysées. If you look at his gap after stage 20, he wins by three and a half minutes over Pogacar. I would say there was no point in the race at any point did Pogacar looked to be even putting him under pressure, like physically uh, or yeah, fitness wise, maybe stage five. But even if, let's say, while it's not in this race, Pogacar gets a minute and a half on stage five, Vinegard's still going to beat him. Um, the the Otacom stage, it's nice to have Wout pacing, and, but wouldn't Vinegard just have cracked Pogacar by himself? He was just a stronger rider. It's hard to know. I guess it's an unknowable. I mean, maybe Wout and Yumbo helped him through the opening sprint stages. Maybe he crashes on stage two or three without those guys positioning him. So in many ways, yes, they're like essential to his tour win. I, I just think hands down, he was the strongest rider in this race. And in some ways, it's not even close. Like he only attacked one time and he won the tour by three and a half minutes. So I would say he probably could have done it setting aside potential crashes in the early stages that didn't happen because of his team. What, what about you? What do you think? I'm still trying to wrap my head around something that I learned from Matt Stevens Instagram, which is that mods Pedersen, who is sponsored by a coffee maker. Uh, yeah, it's vertically integrated. I'm glad you asked this question. So Segafredo, I think they make beans or they harvest beans. They roast their beans. They sell beans, but they also make industrial coffee machines and then personal coffee machines. So I think the idea is they can sell their espresso machine to a coffee bar and then they can also sell you their beans on a regular basis. So you get nice recurring revenue. I think that's the idea with Segafredo. There is no bottom to the depth of your knowledge, Spencer. (laughs) I've looked into this. I've been to many Italian coffee bars and I needed to know about the Segafredo business. We'll investigate this in a future offsite. The thing that blew my mind in this particular interview with Mods Pedersen is that he does not drink coffee. It's unbelievable. It, it's unforgivable. <laughs> What's going on there, man? He calls, him, he calls himself a pro cyclist. Think how good he could be. I think he'd be a double, at least a double world champion, potentially triple if he was. He might have won this tour if he was just drinking coffee. It, it seems this, unbelievable. The sky's the limit for this kid. He doesn't have to deal with DI2 crash mode. He doesn't need caffeine. He's we'll get, posting up those W's. Uh, we'll, get we'll get into some that, DI2. <laughs> that is <laughs> we'll, bizarre. We'll get into some DI2 crash mode hot takes in a minute. Going back to this 
gosh, like, do you have to have strong teammates? And if you had an inordinately strong teammate, might it aid your ability to win the Tour de France? You know, cycling journalists, bike Twitter, they want to have it both ways. How much commentary did we hear, including on this podcast, about the weakness of Tade's team? And here we are at the end of the race now talking about, well, I don't know. Jonas probably couldn't have done it had he not had Wout and Primos up his sleeve. It's a team sport. You have to have strong riders on your team. If you can keep those strong riders, if you can keep them happy, if you can keep them around for the next season and prevent the band from breaking up, which is another thing I want to dig into here, then you're going to be in a position of strength. And I think that's really going to be one of the challenges for Yumbo going forward. And something that, I mean, Enios has been going through this perpetual existential crisis in terms of GC leadership and Pidcock on the rise, potential tour winner. What's going to happen there? I mean, get- let's pump the brakes. The guy finished, <laughs> I think, over an hour back. And he's the same age as Taddy Pogacar. So I would say I was encouraged by his ride, but it's hard to win a Tour de France. It's very hard. Noel Gallagher, I mean, Bradley Wiggins is speculating that Pidcock does have what it takes and could potentially do this. But again, you know, maybe that's some favoritism within British cycling press. I would also say, you know, with Pidcock, with MVDP, and with Wout, you know, it's better to burn out than to fade away. Like, let's see what happens with these riders over time, whether they want to do the long slog. I just don't know if it appeals to modern riders to go for that five, six, seven Tour de France wins. It's for some reason, it's that TikTok attention span. Maybe people don't seem to really want to go after those types of career achievements. It's more about having some fun, getting out there, tasting that spirit of gravel, putting on a camelback, you know, being, being arrow, but also <laughs> think, having not be tired. would have, Taddei was, he would go for seven if he, the thing is you just have to keep winning him. I mean, Chris Froome did it. He's not that old. He's still racing. I think if Taddei wins this, maybe he starts to entertain like a five tour run. It's just the fact that that's really hard to do. Is that so? Well, and also, I mean, I don't want to like slander a generation, but if we're being honest, like Lance's tours were won against in many, in many respects, in, in many years, especially some, I would say not like the tip top. I would not call that a golden era of, of GC racers. I think across the board for like, whether it's doping, uh, equality of doping or not within that generation, because I do think that there was an inequality in access to pharmacological enhancements for riders at that time. Also, inequality of access to training methodologies. I think what we're seeing now is we've talked about many times before on this podcast, just there's such a huge volume of data now around what works and what doesn't work with training from at this point, almost 30 years of power-based training. It's pretty refined. People can fight all day about Steven Seiler polarized training versus sweet spot training and what have you. But training science is getting pretty dialed. We're seeing riders riding at a higher level than ever before at younger ages than we've ever seen them 
achieve this level of form before. I mean, it used to be, Spencer, that until you were in your late 20s, people didn't really think of you as someone who had that potential to keep going at Grand Tours. And it's all changed, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm now, I'm just going through Lance's competitors in my head. Ulrich, definitely a big talent. I don't want anyone to think I'm disparaging. Big talent in, in every way. And I don't say this to disparage him, but again, we've talked about this. Ulrich would come into the tour a few kilos heavy. I mean, Mr. 60% Bjarni Reese came into races with blood like jello, but he was lean and mean. Yeah. And Ulrich had personal demons that I think he pushed them aside in 97 and 2003, which were two amazing tour rides. But I mean, in the off season, he was on ecstasy and he remember he like jumped off a car and tore his ACL or something. I mean, that's just like not, you could not operate in that manner and still be competitive in today's Peloton. We call that the Tom Boonen off season. Yeah. Boonen, I think Boonen gets a bad rap. The guy did, the guy was doing Coke in some Monaco nightclubs. Come on, people. Let's not crucify the guy. But wrecking his Lambo, you know, none of no those, thing. none yeah. of those guys could time trial. And that's like the big thing. If you can't time trial, like get out of here, you're not going to win this race. Um, Basso was okay, but he, he's not a great time trialist. And like, that's the thing with modern racing is you have to be a world-class time trial. Like Jonas Vindegaard is a world-class time trial. Taddy Pogacar, world-class time trial trialer, but you also have to be super strong in the mountains. So it's, it's like harder than it's ever been to win the tour because you can't, just, I mean, to go back to the Peacock thing, I mean, that's like very sweet of Bradley Wiggins to say that, but you got to do it. Like, you got to show me something. I mean, I, I, was, I was impressed, but think of Valent, Valentin Madwas, who probably no one listening to this podcast knows, finished 30 minutes ahead of Tom Pickcock in 11th and has finished third in the Tour of Flanders. Like, that's a better Palmares than Pidcock. Yet no one talks about him. It can just be a little, I think we get a little too caught up with like the English language media. Like, I mean, how much do we hear about Adam Yates during this tour? He finishes 10th. How much do we hear about Vlazov? He finishes fifth. You know, it's like, you just really have to like be conscious of how much you're getting from English language media and like pumping it up and then getting worked into a, a lather and a frenzy. Um, I mean, just for example, the fourth favorite for the 2023 Tour de France is Remco Evenepoel who's never finished a grand tour in his life. And we don't even, he's not even a particularly good stage racer when climbs are involved. So like the media frenzy is out of control with these new riders before we've actually seen them perform at the highest level. And then to tie this back to Jonas, Jonas is the opposite of this. I mean, did anyone know who he was before last year's tour? Like apparently he got signed in 2019 by Yumbo because of a Strava segment. And now he's potentially the most dominant Grand Tour racer in the world, um, which would indicate, you know, I think it's tempting to be like, wow, this guy's going to be great for the next 10 years. But if we, if we like follow the Jonas or the Tade model, there's, there's a 19-year-old right now who we don't know who's going to be better than all the young, youngsters that we think are stars now. I mean, is that just, is that me being hysterical or like, think how good Garrett Thomas was. Think how good. David Gadu was. Think how good Naira Quintana was. And those guys are riding better than they've ever ridden in their lives. And they're not even competitive in these Tour de France's because youngsters keep coming over the top on them. You know, it's just, I think we want to be careful about projecting future success based on good results, but not definitive results. I mean, and that's 
guess that takes it back to your Enios thing. Like, where do, where does Enios go from here? Garrett Thomas is their best GC rider on the team right now, and he's 36 years old, and he's not getting any faster. I mean, what would you do if you're running that team? Pitcock is locked down for how many years? Because he, after some drama, he just resigned with Enios, so he's locked down for how many years, Spencer? He's through 2027. And is there any get out clause? Uh, there's always a get out clause. I mean, it's like it's like in any. And there's no contracts anymore in professional sports. You say you want to leave, you're leaving because you can just say I'm not going to race, and then the team's going to have to pay you to sit at home. And who wants to do that? So you can always get out. And I think in in Europe, I was just talking to a manager about this the other day. Um, I mean, obvi- uh, Britain's famously not in the EU anymore, but you know, there could be a way for him to move to Belgium or something and, and and to trigger this this rule, this law, where you can just pay what is left on your contract. That's what Tom Boonen did. He was making $60,000 a year on U.S. Postal for two years. He got offered millions by Quickstep, and he just wrote Postal a check for 120,000 euros and then walked away because the, the idea is that the EU wants you to be able, as a worker, to be free to move about the marketplace. So Pickock, in theory, could just write a check for what's rem- left on his contract and then go wherever he wants to go. Uh, that's wild. I'd completely forgotten that Boone and rode for Postal, and I'm assuming Johan saw him as a junior U23 and signed him onto the team. Is that what yeah. happened? and he got third at Roubaix, making 60,000 euros a wow. year. Wow. It's crazy. What a guy. I've, Tom Boone is a legend. He's one of my favorite cyclists of all time. And open invitation, Tom, if you're listening, I'd love to have you on Choose the Hard Way love to hear more about your passion for house music and your record collection <laughs> maybe we could dj together you gotta you gotta have life goals so that's one maybe of mine we get vacation together i mean i just like not to be too forward but i mean you could just like live in my house hey i i think the idea of just getting on the ones and twos with somebody that's a that's a, a bit short of like let's go on a vacation but fair enough spencer when it comes to pidcock here's what i think is going to happen With Pidcock, I think it really does come down to his attention span and what he thinks is going to be fun for himself and entertaining to do. I don't think that he knows yet in his cycling career where he wants to go. And like MVDP, probably he's maybe a bit more like Wout than MVDP is my gut feeling. Time will tell. I think he very well, after having gotten a taste of tour success at the highest level at a very early point in his grand tour career. I think he's going to want to go for yellow. I think he's going to want to become a GC rider. That's going to mean he has to set aside some of the other things that he's world-class at mountain biking, cyclocross, cyclocross, a bit different. Maybe he can continue to dabble in that in the off season. Side note, I think I've, I just think that that's such a high risk activity from an orthopedic injury point of view i'm not other than keeping the riders happy i'm not sure why road teams allow their riders to do that because i think the possibility of an orthopedic injury running in ankle deep mud and around sloppy corners and what have you is actually pretty high so if you want oh, to come protect- on as, as any high profile road rider like suffered a multi-year injury that's derailed a promising career before racing off road i don't think so i mean matthew <laughs> vanderpool's fine what's the worry about <laughs> let them ride yeah pitcock no, yeah, is but, gonna pitcock is right. one yeah vanderpool got really really hurt at the tokyo, tokyo olympics doing 
as you, it was probably stupid for him to do the Olympic mountain bike race without previewing the course. And then now who knows if, you know, I don't know. He didn't look good at this tour. So who, who knows what we can expect from him in the future? Yeah. I mean, we could, that's a whole other can of worms debatable. His coach said they didn't know the ramp was going to re- be removed during the race, which is if you don't know what happened to Matthew Vanderpool at the Tokyo Olympics, there was a pretty large drop that gives a gap jump really that the riders launched off of in the race and practice. They had a wooden ramp so you could just roll it in the race. Vanderpool went to roll it and it turned out the ramp that was there that he was depending on was not there. So he landed on his front wheel, catapulted himself over the bars, somersaulted, landed on his already injured back. And then we've seen the consequences of that throughout this season. Getting back to Pitcock, if he wants to go for yellow, and I think he's going to want to go for yellow, Enios is going to go all in, I think, behind a British rider who wants to go for a tour victory. I think that thing causes chaos because Bernal is going to be back. Whether he'll come back at full strength or not, we don't know. And I think we're going to continue to see churn and descent and lack of internal alignment on that team. And like, we're not even getting into the Yates of it all. Maybe you send him to, I don't know, like he becomes your welter rider, but what is he going to do with the tour? So I don't know if they get to the level of team coherence, camaraderie and strength that they need to make a real run at a tour victory. And yeah. And then it gets back to where does Wout go from here? Cause he's going to go to another team. He wants to oh, win. No. I believe he wants to, he wants to win a yellow Jersey. So where does no, he go? Wout does no interest in the yellow Jersey. I think, I mean, it just, so let's go back. It's crazy that we're, we just watched two guys destroy the tour and we're talking about a guy who finished 17th overall, but we've got to unpack this pickcock thing. I mean, he's like, I'm looking at his, his season so far or his last two seasons, really good classics rider, you know, second in Amso gold, third at Dwarves de Verlander, and third at Kern Brussels Kern. I mean, those are all good. Sixth at Flesh Malone, fifth at Strada Bianchi, sixth at World Championships. Those are not like, that's not Taddy Pogacar. Taddy Pogacar has won, what, two monuments and two tours? And they're the same age. So I do wonder sometimes, do people get ahead of themselves with Pickcock? And he got 17 to the tour. So there's a lot of promise there. If he really buckled down and just did one day hilly one day races, he could have a lot of success. Like think of Envision and Aleph Philippe. Like that's an awesome career. If he goes for yellow, that's it. Like you're not doing anything else, really. Like maybe you're contesting. It's like the Tade program. You're contesting two or three hilly monuments a year, but really your season is just training for the tour. I mean, what if it doesn't work? Like what if you don't win? And it's not easy to win. I mean, is Tom Pickock better than Jonas Vindegaard at chime trialing and climbing? Like no. And it's not guaranteed that he will be. Or Tade Pogacar. So it's, it is really high risk. Like it's like Garrett Thomas. Like he pushed aside his classics career. He won a tour. So it's probably worth it. But I don't know. If, if the envision Garrett Thomas as a classics contender, like, is that a better career for him? I don't know. It's just very high risk if you don't stick the landing. And it's so hard to win a tour, like, unbelievably difficult. Where if you have like a bird in the hand as a classics career, but you go for the two in the bush and it doesn't work out, I don't know. I'm not sure it's like the slam dunk career move. And then, wow. I think has no interest in. I mean, did you watch the Dauphiné this year? I thought he was a slam dunk to win the Dauphiné. 
and he seemed like disinterested in the mountain stages. I, I maybe he's just tired and he just sat up and got dropped. But you know, if he can't win a Dauphiné, I, I don't know if he really has like the, the focus in long mountain stages to win the tour. And that would be that would ruin his career. He would have to lose twenty pounds. He would not win another one day race. He would have to change the fundamental being of who he is. He's such an aggressive rider. You cannot race that way in the Tour de France if you want to win it. I don't think he has any inch. I, I just, I don't see any interest from him. I mean, are you seeing quotes from him that you're like thinking, or you just think it'd be cool to win the tour and he should do it? He has a real Babe Ruth quality to him. The Olympic gold medal, the cyclocross world championship, going to the tour winning on Alpe d'Huez. At the same time, I am <laughs> I am looking at the GC rankings uh, and right behind him is Sepp Kuss. So, And I'm not talking about, I don't think Sepp Kuss is a tour winner. Granted, he's a bit older than Pidcock. So it might sound like poppycock to talk about Pidcock going for yellow. I think that if he decides that he wants to win the yellow jersey, I think that he has the capacity to do it. He'll have to become, he'll have to drop all the extracurriculars. You know, he'll no longer have the dancing with the stars as an option. He's going to have to stay off his feet and really focus on his training. But are we just saying like, yeah, so if he wasn't who he was, he would be good at racing the Tour de France. Like, is that just kind of who he is? (laughs) I don't think we know yet. I think it's too early to tell. So he's then coming with, into focus, similar to how we've seen. I mean, Wout has Wout went out and did a few time trials at World Cup cyclocross events this year and absolutely destroyed everyone, vanquished all of his adversaries in a most brutal fashion, as he often does. But that was just him having a little bit of fun. He didn't fully dedicate himself to a cyclocross season. And I think that Wout is on more of the Zdenek Stibar trajectory at this point i think that that's just something that'll do occasionally for fun for fans in the off season but it's not the focus of his program for pidcock mountain biking cyclocross classics and grand tour riding have all been on the same level in terms of his objectives and i think it's going to come into focus but i don't want this to be the entire uh (laughs) focus of this episode right Uh, I that's just an observation that I have. So Pickock could definitely, I mean, he's 58 kilos. The guy could try to win a tour and he might with, you do think Wout will ever, you, do you think Wout Benart will ever try to win a tour de France? Yeah, I think he, I think he will try to win a tour. I don't know if it's going to be next year, but maybe over the next two years, he drops, you know, 10 to 14 kilos, which is a lot of weight. And he does a Wiggins. He does. Uh, Thomas, that's one of the things that really struck me during this tour with Wiggins on the back of the motorcycle and then in particular on the final day when they had the TikTok stars that are the hosts of the GCN and Eurosport broadcast, which was excellent this year, not just for their dancing on TikTok, which was excellent, but for their commentary. So they're all standing there on the Champs-Élysées doing interviews and Bradley Wiggins is a gigantic human. He looks like And I know that he's probably been banging some weights 
as we know, since he left professional cycling, but he looks like someone whose body wants to be big. And he was a larger rider when he was fully focused on the track and he dropped a lot of weight in order to be a tour contender and winner. And I think that that's within reach for Wout. If he wants to do it, he's, there have been some quotes from him indicating, yeah, he does actually have interest in doing that. And when we take a look at, gosh, the amount of time that he spent on the front in this tour, both when it made sense and sometimes when it made no sense at all, I actually, I would like to see a comparison of Wout Van Aert time at breakaways and off the front compared to the entire drone hopper team at the 2022 Giro d'Italia. I think that he may have spent more time off the front. I don't think he will just because Wiggins did lose weight and then is quite open about how it kind of ruined his life and he was miserable and got divorced and doesn't make it sound that appealing. Same with Tom Dumoulin. It kind of, if you read between the lines, that's why he retired, just having to keep the weight down. I think Wilde's life is pretty awesome. And it just, I don't know. It seems like a big risk for, does he even, does he win the tour? I mean, 14 kilos is a lot. He probably wins the tour if he drops 14 kilos and keeps his power. But the thing I keep coming back to is that 2021 Tour de France, Primoz Roglic crashes out. Wilde's in yellow, I think. Maybe I'm misremembering. I think he's in yellow. And... Yeah, just look at stage 11. They go into the mountains. It's like time for him to to pick up the mantle for Yumbo. And he he really, really struggled. Um, and that was like anytime we've seen him try to lead in a grand or in a, any type of stage race, he just does not have the consistency like the Dauphiné this year where it's like the, the, the wind was sitting out there for him to take and he just cannot get over those high potentially it's the altitude it's definitely not the length of the climbs because we saw him win the double von two stage and there's almost no longer climb than that i i don't know i it just he did get second at Torino adriatico once but then that's the only time we've ever seen him really even put together a week-long stage race so just that 2021 tour kind of haunts my haunts my nightmares a little bit where i thought we were going to see wout actually ride for the gc and he he couldn't do it. You know, it's like GC racing. It's like an odd alchemy. You'd think someone like Remco Evenepoel, you'd think they would be good at it. And some people just are not. They just don't have the consistency. Jonas Vindegaard, you'd never think he would be good at it. And he's the best at it. So I don't know. I mean, he, certainly if he puts his mind to it, he could probably do anything he wants on a bike. I'll, I'll just believe it when I see it. But let's, let's answer. We'll come back to Wout in one second about where he goes. Does the band stay together? But where does Tade Pogacar go from here? I mean, he really just got his clock cleaned by Jonas Vindegaard. Can he stay at, as we talked about the team, we can acknowledge teams are important. It's a team sport. Can he stay at UAE? Like, what does he do here? That was not a good showing from his team. Not a good showing from his team. Didn't seem like the shots being called in the team car were the best either. And we saw what seemed like a lot of open conflict between Tade and his management, you know, whether it was over basic things like, Hey, where's my water? Yeah. Can I the maybe water <laughs> is, is really important. <laughs> and he was not getting it. Uh, yeah. I think your average age group, Ironman triathlete had better nutrition and hydration support in their most recent race than Todd a did in this tour. Um, so yeah, I think it's a matter of, can his team get its act together behind the scenes and who can they buy in the off season? 
And I mean, we also have to keep in mind COVID, of course, right? COVID, um, got Micah's bizarre chain drop, knee injury, torn muscle that happened as well. So there, there were a lot of things that weren't in their favor from a luck point of view. I and he know. did get help. I mean, like think of McNulty's ride. That was awesome. Oh, yeah. The thing is, actually, the on-road support was better than I would have thought. Um, I just kind of want to unpack the managerial decisions. And I thought Wiggins, he was on Lance Armstrong's podcast. I think on stage 20, it was really interesting. He talks about in detail what it took for him to win the tour. And he also, I thought he was the, the, like, the first person I heard to open the question, like, can Mauro Gennetti continue to run this team? I don't know. Uh, Mr. Gennetti, uh, I just, he's like, A, he was like really into doping and never really doesn't seem sorry about it and is running a team. That's odd. But why was Mark Hershey on that tour squad? The guy was not in shape. I, I do not understand the decision to bring him to the race. The water, it seems like they're not getting, a, I don't know. There was just, you shouldn't have your team leader yelling at the team car about something it seemed like Tade was making his own decisions all of the time like there's no real figurehead head there that's like ruling with an iron fist which is kind of what you need to win the tour i mean bradley wiggins very outspoken person very big star he, he could have told sky to go kick rocks and he was going to go race classics for the rest of his days but he had, he didn't make any decisions in his grand to in his tour de france winning year he just listened to what they told him to do I, I just, I don't know. There's so much, I came away from this tour so confused about UAE, like the back room, what is going on in that front office? Like, is, is it, it's almost like you think of like the New York Knicks or something. Is it so, is it, is the organization so infected that even if the riders are strong, even if Rafa Micah stays in the race, even if they don't get COVID, they just don't have like the DNA to make good decisions to like build a good tour strategy. I think that I think that's the case. One of the things that's popping into my head right now was the total lack of Brailsford during the Tour de France this year. And I've, I was just thinking back to earlier in the season, like at uh, Perry Roubaix, for example, you would have think that Brailsford actually personally won the race. He, he, <laughs> he was just like so present and so out front when the team was doing well, when they won, when they were on the podium. He was uh, a lot of coverage. It was kind of old Brailsford doing a lot of media this year. No Brailsford, which is just like weird. It's almost like a vote of another, yet another vote of no confidence in Thomas and, and the team's ability to do anything. And there might have been other things going on. I don't know yeah, why well, it wasn't he, there. I, I, uh, I'm like very conflicted about how to even talk about him. I don't know. If he had cancer. I don't know if you know this. So that's kind of as he, he started to step back from the team. And then he got a new role where... He like oversees all of sport at Ineos, which seems like a big role. Um, so maybe, you know, maybe we're reading too much into it and it's just he was available for the Roubaix weekend and they happened to win. And then he's dealing with like the F1 team and the football team. It just seems like an odd, it actually seems kind of an odd role. Um, but yeah, yeah, I know. I noticed that too. It was not a vote of confidence. And I know there was a lot of tension in the offseason with Garrett Thomas and the team, which I assume includes Dave Brailsford. So maybe, I don't know, the whole thing, Ineos, Garrett Thomas had an amazing tour. Like, I think it was physically the best tour he's ever ridden. Like, if he rides this tour any other year before 2020, he probably wins the tour. But, God, they cannot be stoked that 
a 36-year-old guy that they didn't even want to bring back, ended up bringing back, is now better than everyone else on that team in a GC capacity. Um, Carapaz is leaving. I'm actually, I'm not even sure that's the worst thing for them. The Carapaz experience has not been probably what they signed up for. But yeah, I don't think Brailsford is like too excited to to dig his hands into that offseason, try to figure out what to do there. Carapaz, question for you. What do you see him writing for in 2023? And can EF support whatever his ambitions might be? I think I kind of see him as like a Iran 2.0. Do you remember those? He had those good years. Like he had a year where he got second at the tour. Um, he was just kind of out there. Like he was, he's floating, like no support. Um, he won that stage, I think, where his gears got jammed or his DI2 went into crash mode. <laughs> Why does that keep happening to that team? And I think that's, I think he'll settle into a role like that, like that uh, post peak Iran when he was at EF and he was doing well, but no support whatsoever and just having to freelance. Um, it's odd to me that's what he's chosen to do with his career. Um, I don't totally understand why, but maybe, I mean, Iran seemed to enjoy that role. So maybe, maybe he will. Does he go into, almost Quintana mode. I hate to say it, but is that his future? I mean, I, I mean, I don't want to be too negative on him because he got third at the tour last year, second at the zero this year. If you just start ticking off the world's best GC riders, you'd say Vindegaard, Pogacar are tier one, tier two, Roglic when his back isn't broken. And then I think you'd have to put yeah, I mean, Roglic, probably Roglic, Henley, and then I think you'd have to put Carapaz in that second tier. So he is still like in a very rarefied air of GC contenders. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think about other EF writers who were GC level. What, what about TJ? What was, did TJ ever he was go top five? At, no, that was in the no? BMC years. I, TJ mm. actually rode by his old house yesterday. I was just thinking about his career. Um, I think when he moved to Aspen to be closer to his wife's family, he moved to a winter climate to train in the winter in that climate. I don't think he was ever, I don't think he ever reached his heights after that, but very talented rider. Well, yeah, cause you're already up fourth of the tour at BMC. But then once he went to EF, I, I, I mean, what I'm like, I'm, I'm crap compared to all those guys. Anyone working at that team is like better at cycling things than me. I don't want to be disparaging them, but, that team tends to to have a reputation as a retirement team. Like TJ's stint there seemed like it was just, it's kind of like, it's kind of an active retirement. Let's talk a little bit about total cycling, Spencer. This is, I don't know if this term has been used in other places, but you used it during the tour in the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. Could you talk a little bit about what the total cycling concept is and where it comes from, how it's related to what's going on in football, European right, so football. I just stole this from, there's like a the famous Dutch team called Ajax. It's like the biggest team in the country. I, I guess it goes back a long ways, like almost a hundred years. They've been, they kind of invented this idea of like total football. And then they dominated Europe with this philosophy where everyone on the pitch outside of the goalkeeper is able to play every position. So if you're left back and you just happen to move into the striker position, the striker moves and replaces you at left back. So no one's ever out of position. Everyone can, everyone's fungible. They can just play the same roles. 
doesn't it doesn't totally hold up in cycling because you can't have multiple leaders like you can't have Wout losing 11 minutes on stage seven and then being the leader the next day. But maybe you could just say the leader is the goalkeeper. That's the only non movable piece. And then everyone else can just operate like everyone else can do everything and no one rider can do something that another rider can't. I, I started using that term to define the Dutch team, Jumbo Visma, because we just saw, I mean, Wout Van Aert is, what is he? Is he's, a, he's a domestique, he's a mountain domestique, but he's also pushing for them on the flats, keeping them out of trouble. Christophe Laporte is a domestique, like he was kind of the, the bodyguard to Vinegard, but then he's also winning sprint stages. Um, Sepp Kuss is, I guess Sepp Kuss is a little bit more, you know, a little bit more of a one-trick pony, but he is like a world-class, he could be winning, he could probably be slotting into that Nairo stage winning role if he wanted to just go ride for Arkea. But then he's just choosing to be their mountain domestique who's dropping Vinegard off to then be paced by the green jersey while Van Art higher up on the mountain. So I just started using it to define this, this, uh, this program that Yumbo seems to have created where they just kind of have like a mush, like a soup of riders, and they can just ladle them out, lay them out in any way they want, go to a race, and it works out. Um, I mean, for example, I thought Wout could have won the Dauphiné this year with Jonas and Primos both at the race. Um, it just, they just seem to be able to like, um, well, Christoph, you're a domestique, but let's win the sprint today with you. Um, Wout, you're a sprinter, you, you be the mountain domestique today. Obviously, you have to have extremely talented riders to be able to do this, but I think it stands in stark contrast to Ineos, who seem to have more of a defined structure. I mean, you could never imagine, think of that tour team. You have Tom Pickock going for stage wins. You have Garrett Thomas going for the GC. And then, the, I mean, really none of the other, all the other riders there are just there to perform a role, like a very strict role, not to even, you're not even supposed to be noticing them. Um, and that's how they were when they were at their prime. They would just control the race with defensive tactics. And you'd have the leader, let's say it was Bradley Wiggins or Chris Froome or Garrett Thomas. Everyone else is a faceless, uh, not mindless, that's a mean thing to say, but they were just performing like a very rote function and you were never supposed to notice them and they would never actually step out of it and do anything else. But it's allowed Yumbo to be extremely flexible. I mean, I was shocked at how aggressive some of their tactics were at this tour. Like, for example, going back to stage four where Wout is leaving Jonas to go for a stage win and they're, they're willing to roll the dice that they can just get time later and have Wout do his thing in these opening stages. I mean, or even sending him into the breakaway on stage. What was the Otacom stage, stage 18 maybe? Instead of, you know, the, the old conventional wisdom would just be turtle up around your leader and don't get guys in the breakaway. But it worked out for them. Um, I don't know, what, what did you, how do you define total cycling? Yeah, I mean, to me, it's analogous to what we've been using the term cycling 2.0. And yeah, it is the idea that riders are not playing the conventional roles that we've come to expect them to play in the last 30 years of the Tour de France. The whole strategy of total cycling, as you noted, it's, it really hangs on the idea that you have these generational talents who have the flexibility to be a sprinter, a time tri trialist, a climber at key moments. I mean, as you noted, 
we have seen Wout not do as well when he has the designated leadership role at these shorter stage races, but we have seen him climb at an incredibly high level, including in this tour. We saw him drop Tade for a minute. I mean, he came back, but there are moments when his climbing is, you know, on par with the very best climbers in the Peloton. So that's how I think about it. And to go back to something else that you mentioned earlier, Spencer, we don't know who this next crop of 18 to 20 year old riders are who might show up and disrupt what we think of as the new status quo. We kind of, okay, we've got Jonas, we've got Tade, we've got Wout, we have, you know, whatever, Pidcock, just as somebody who can flex in and out of winning a lot of different types of races. Like, set, let's set aside the question of whether or not he's a tour contender. And there could be, you know, another half dozen riders right around the corner that are going to bubble up here in the next six to 12 months who could do the exact same thing. If, cycling keeps moving in that direction i think it's just going to get more and more interesting and another thing that's going to happen we haven't talked about this much and this is all in the domain of speculation but my gut is that once this tour de france netflix show drops i think that we're going to see road cycling and interest in competitive cycling definitely from a consumption and spectator point of view i i think it might do as much as double going into the tour next year. I also think that it's likely to create a boom in participation in the sport and road racing in America is pretty much completely dead, especially stage racing or multi-day racing. Criterium racing is still hanging in there. I think that this is going to be a really transformational moment for the sport in the next 12 months. Yeah. <laughs> Hold on. Before we go into that, I just, one thing I want to mention is like Tobias Johansson. He's like a 22 year old, like rock star GC budding writer <clears throat> on second division. Uno X was not at this tour. That's someone I would, I, I wonder if in 12 months it's, he's at the tour and it's like, Oh my God, where did this guy come from? So there, there's a lot, a lot of really, really good young writers out there. It's odd to me that though, like, why isn't Ineos signing this guy? I mean, maybe it's their obsession with homegrown British riders. And that's why Adam Yates is a designated leader, even though he's never podiumed at a Grand Tour. And they have a $60 million a year roster payroll. Um, it's just, yeah, a lot of that escapes me. I, I hope you're right about the Netflix show. I have a, like a looming fear. Like I wake up at two in the morning, just like screaming, yelling. Um, is this thing going to stink? Is it not going to be good? I, I worry, like, can everyone just replicate Drive to Survive and then every sport gets popular? Or is it just become like a market saturation at some point? I mean, I know when I was watching this tour, I was thinking like, wow, I can't wait, wait to watch this Netflix series. That's going to be good. I mean, I know some of these, I mean, Jonas Vingegaard, Tadej Pogacar are so good. You know, there's like people at your house who don't follow cycling. They're like, who's winning the tour? And you're like, Jonas Vindegaard. I mean, you can just see their eyes glaze over. Like no one has any idea who these guys are. Wout Van Aert, maybe the best writer of all time, or at least one of them. People don't know who he is in the general public. So in that respect, maybe that, that could really help get these guys into the mainstream in the way that could allow average fans to watch the tour because that's the only reason you watch i mean why did so many people watch lance because they knew the story they knew the players they knew jan Ulrich. 
So it could help in that respect. I hope it does help. Do you are you do you think it's going to be a slam dunk? Or are you like concerned that it might flop or just not make the splash that they think it's going to make? Styles make fights. Part of why the Lance era was so interesting is it just had professional wrestling level characters. I mean, I mean, whatever you think of Lance, he's an incredibly charismatic person and is a media personality and is kind of built to be someone who's in front of a microphone and to be provocative and to drive public interest. Looking at the current crop of talent at the Tour de France, you know, we'll see what happens to take the movie star documentary. There are two seasons of that on Netflix. It's really interesting and I enjoy watching it, but it's very cerebral and it's it's very emo. I don't think that that show, for example, really can. I mean, it didn't. It didn't connect with a large audience. I don't think if you were a hardcore cyclist, you probably really enjoyed it. But thinking about Drive to Survive and why it's been so successful, you have such big personalities in the sport, both in terms of the team management as well as the drivers themselves and you know the drivers who we've come to know the best and who i think have really driven the popularity of the series people like um daniel ricardo for example just a really big charis- big personality really charismatic i don't know what's going to happen when it's hey you know the tour de france netflix show is at the yumbo visma dinner or they're they're doing the one-on-one confessional interview with Jonas or Wout. I mean, I've seen them in front of the camera at the end of a race. Jonas seems like a very thoughtful, very introspective and um, person and a person of few words. Probably his personality seems and his media persona seem most analogous probably to Chris Froome. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Who's the opposite of Lance Armstrong? I mean... Yeah, I think it was very hard for people to hold focus during. I mean, Froome was good. Think about four tours. He crashed out of one and broke his wrist. Probably could have won five. The guy did not resonate outside of Britain. I mean, he is, he's never, has he, he ever said anything interesting on camera? And, and you know, maybe that's his tactic. He's just like, I'm not going to give people anything. And it's allowed him to, he's not hated, you know, and he did get caught cheating right or maybe not cheating maybe that's not the right word i don't know he was found with drugs in his system and he was way able to weather that very well um, bad asthma spencer give him a break yeah a lethal amount of asthma medication i think is the accurate way to describe what happened there but it allowed him to weather that without eliciting hatred the way um lance or even like contador did yeah and to take a look at Froome's writing style often accused of being a power meter stirrer. And he did have some really dramatic moments. So we've talked about some of them during this Tour de France series, his daring attack on the Parasword, for example, like busting out the first ever pedaling super tuck, which by the way, I want to talk about the super tuck and, and dropper post, but not right now. And then of course, there was the moment when Chris Froome became, I believe the first writer I've ever seen run run up a mountain during a tour de France stage after he got tackled off of his bike. Not just run up a mountain, run up a mountain without his bike. Without his bike. Yeah. Which is highly illegal. 
highly illegal, but made forward progress in the race without his bike effectively turning it into a duathlon, <laughs> you know, but that wasn't enough to make him a really popular figure. And I, I do think that one of the challenges we're going to see with the series is a lack of, um, maybe a really relatable champion figure. Yeah. I mean, in Ricardo is it's, it's also funny. The more I get into F1, like I watch practice, I watch qualities, I watch the race. My son is still upset about Charles Leclerc crashing on Sunday spoilers. If you haven't seen the French grand prix, but I even brought it up yesterday and he was started crying again. He's that big of a Ferrari fan. Um, but I have a harder time watching drive to survive now that I've more into F1 because it is so sensationalized. It's, it's, it's like, can't hold my attention the way the early seasons could, but Ricardo was, if you go back and watch the first season, Ricardo is key, key to the success of that series. Cause he's so, you know, he's like objectively attractive and he's so charismatic and that's your entrance into the sport. If that's Jonas Vindegaard instead of Daniel Ricardo, I have slight concerns about if it's going to, going to pop and the Movistar documentary is a perfect example. I found it really interesting. I actually couldn't believe they made it and, and made it that honest. If you're not really into cycling, like there's people who listen to this podcast who probably aren't even into cycling enough to even follow what's going on in that show. So that, that would be an example of like what I hope doesn't happen. Yeah, completely. It's, it's another level of depth, the Movistar documentary. And I agree with you. It, I've had the same experience with Drive to Survive. It's become less interesting me to me as the seasons have progressed to the point now that I, I'm just not quite as interested in it, although I am interested in F1 as a sport now, which was not the case at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'm not going to... you know, And I think the difference with cycling and part of why I think we might see an actual boom is I do think from a participation point of view because of the spirit of gravel, this is actually cycling like skateboarding i guess skateboarding is maybe not a good example like skateboarding when i was younger it kind of was cyclical and went through stages of being cool or not cycling has kind of been at a steady level of cool and gravel has risen there are tons of people participating in those events nobody wants to road race i don't think anymore i mean we're even seeing professionals abandoning professional road racing in america to go be gravel privateers. That's a very popular move. As I think we know. this is like great though. Like the U S racing. I mean, I think that was propped up. It was like people were making six, six figures racing in the U S. I just don't think that was ever sustainable. There's, there's not the interest, the grassroots interest for road racing. It's expensive. It's hard to set up. It's off putting categories. What the heck are the categories? USA cycling. Why do I got to pay them a bunch of money to do this race? I mean, gravel racing, is the much better alternative for 99% of people in the United States, just to be able to show up and like have fun, ride your bike. It gets people like loving the idea of getting together to ride bikes. I don't think, I, I, I think this is an unpopular opinion, especially in Boulder. I think road racing in the U S is completely unnecessary and doesn't need to happen. Spencer, what is the future of gravel as it relates to DI2 crash mode? Yeah, wait. I was. We'll uh, we'll we'll dive into the gravel road racing uh, situation in the off season. This is so EF constantly has their DI two go into crash mode. Um, Set Van Mark probably cost him multiple Flanders podiums and Perry Roubaix podiums because his DI two would always go into crash mode. Stefan Bissinger 
Bissinga, something like that, on the final time trial of this tour, had it go into crash mode. It happened to them multiple times earlier in the tour. It just basically, your, your gears think the bike is crashing, so the gears stop working as to not ruin the bike. Andrew, does it, is it just me? Is this only happening to EF and it's happening to EF all the time? Like, what is going on here? EF is an outlier. They're definitely re- leading the DI2 crash mode race. We've seen this happen to a lot of other teams. I happened to catch the Sagan interview following the Champs-Élysées stage. He rolled up on the, the Eurosport crew and he shared that he had dropped his chain about 700 meters out, got it back on and then did how he did in the sprint. And he also noted that uh, Jakobsen had dropped his chain. Both of those riders, Shimano riders, both had drop chains. There's, there's like so much DI2. But that's specialized, right? That's the... Uh, okay, yeah, fair enough. And I thinking back at uh, Edge Case, but there's the unique Cavendish sprint style that derails chains as well. I don't know what that's drop about. Chain, drop chains are not uncommon on the Champs-Élysées. So it also could just be that Jakobsen and Sagan just got unlucky. Because it's, okay. it's, it's so, the cobblestones are so rough. I mean, the chains are like flying everywhere. I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Specialized bikes do seem to have more drop change than other chains. I don't know if they don't put chain... Uh, protectors not chain like chain guides on there uh, it's like not the cool thing to do potentially specialized doesn't want that on the bikes but a lot of those teams do have like really uncool uh protectors on there to keep the chains from dropping i did a little more investigation of this because there are a lot of questions about whether uh di2 crash mode could they simply do something with the software to stop this from happening i heard no yeah, right. So the answer is that there's a mechanical aspect of when crash mode kicks in. There's some debate about how exactly it works. But it appears that you can't stop it from happening. Would you just run mechanical shifting? I mean, I know that's like what Fabian Cancellara did at the classics. I think that's what Sagan does at the classics right. because the idea is if there's a chance my gears stop working, that's chance is too high because these are super important races and they're bumpy i mean i mean i guess that's there's a limit to that like the, the sponsor's not going to let you just run old gear forever but i guess this is just never going away since di2 is probably going to become more and more common and crash mode it, it, it is necessary for the average person we don't want our our like bikes getting ripped apart as they're shifting on the ground and uh riff, ripping a derailleur off the the uh, frame, but it just seems, I mean, that's like, think how hard Stefan Bissinger worked for that time trial. And then it's like, Oh, sorry, your, your bike went into crash mode. Nothing we can do about it. Yeah. Sagan's team ran mechanical during the Perry Roubaix stage early in the tour this year. So they actually, you know, you could see cables on their bikes. It was so wild. And Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. How does that team feel about, the Sagan signing. I mean, they didn't even sniff a stage when it, I mean, Sagan had a few good sprints early. Yeah. Is that how they, he's making like 6 million years a year on that team. He's I, doing I, all right. Are they loving 
the tour that they had? Are they loving Sagan's performances? Sagan seemed to feel okay about it. He seemed tranquil. <laughs> I think Sagan feels very good about it. Just yeah. checking his Chase app every every night after the stages. Yeah, he felt pretty good, I think. I, I mean, yeah, I was really surprised. I was thinking about other teams that didn't put points on the board but had much better performances than Sagan's team. In particular, I'm thinking of Intermarche. Some you know, while they didn't taste victory, some really strong rides. I was personally very disappointed not to see one of my favorite riders, Taco Vanderhorn, score a stage win. I mean, he got the fact that he got close is incredible. And they did get top 10 in the overall, which is a big deal. Not yeah. I mean, that honestly, us, that, te- that team is really impressing me this year. They've had some, some fantastic rides and, you know, Thinking about uh, Sagan's team, like, yeah, you'd expect a little bit more, wouldn't you, Spencer? I think for the money they spent, I mean, they could have Tobias Johansson. Why is no one signing this guy? Um, I just think they could have Wout Van Aert for the amount of money they spent on him. Um, Let's actually circle back to Wout for one second. But, yeah, it's not... I can't imagine they're, they're totally stoked about spending that much money on Sagan and then... He, I guess he did look about as good as he's looked in the past three years. He wasn't worse. He was probably better than he was last year. But, man, they, I, just don't, I just don't understand that signing. And the rest of the team outside of the tour has actually been pretty good. Um, they just didn't. Like, I expected more from Pierre Latour. I, I don't quite know what happened there. Maybe the, the harder breaks make it more difficult for people like him to get in it. But... You know, would you ever see like what if Wout just thought experiment? Like, would Wout ever just go to Total Energies and then that's the Wout Van Art team and they're at the tour doing whatever he wants? Oh wow, my brain is exploding because there are a lot of empty vessels. If you notice this tour, there's so many teams as you say, no points on the board whatsoever, and then you just wonder like, are some of these Yumbo guys going to just start looking around and thinking, wow, if I went to AG2R? I'm the man. Like they're just all writing for me. Yeah. Something that I jotted down in my notes that relates to this. I was thinking about what if Wout does go somewhere else? And this is somewhat similar to the Carapaz dilemma, but really the rate limiter of riders with aspirations at the Tour de France is the quality of their support riders. So you put Wout on that team can he attract and retain the level of support writers that he needs to continue to do the things that he's been doing? And you could say that while being a total outlier, actually he can do anything. He doesn't have to have those support writers, but is that, is that really true? And it appears that Yumbo has now built the world's best team infrastructure. And uh, Spencer, I know we were talking about this a lot, not on episodes, but just in terms of, um, what Yumbo does to enable their writers to have like the family and social situations they need to perform at their highest level, which is a newer thing in professional cycling. Like, is he going to get that set up at a different team? No, I mean, that's a really good point. You see this a lot. Guys leave quick step and they're never as good as they were at quick step. I'm looking at AG2R, just a team I said randomly that actually probably could work as far as support because you have, that whole team is actually really strong. And 
you do wonder if Wout's leading that team. Um, and then you just go look at their tour roster. It's it's very, very strong. He could he could have the support he needs on the road. But as you say that infrastructure, Yumbo just seems to have that so dialed. I know there's a lot of like, they got a lot. We'll talk about those dopey questions too real quick before we go. Like a lot of mudslinging at them. But even if you set that aside and you set your disbelief aside, I mean, you just look at their bikes. Their bikes are more aerodynamic than anyone else's bikes in the Peloton. They've clearly thought about it. And even Christophe Laporte, who came over from Kofidis, he was a pretty good rider at Kofidis. I think people are maybe overplaying like, oh, he, they turned a, a donkey into a racehorse. This guy stunk at Kofidis. He was a, a good rider at Kofidis. He was the best rider on Kofidis. And he's been open about since coming over to Yumbo that it just makes a difference because they pay for you and your whole family to go to, to an altitude training camp. Whereas at Kofidis, I, I'm, this could be like a hallucination I'm having. I swear I remember talking to someone about sharing beds at an altitude training camp, a team training camp, and then like eating pizza in the evening, which is like what we would do. Like if we went on a cycling trip would be like, yeah, that sounds fun to me. Like beer and pizza, get some rides in. But that's not what you should be doing at a team training camp preparing for the tour. Um, so just a level of professionalism. And I know that's a euphemism in cycling for doping, but it is a higher level of professionalism. The fact that they will, they invest in the rider experience and want you to get away to training camps and want to make it as nice as possible. Uh, you can bring your family. Like I think Ruglitch has like, he's not away from home that often. You would think, uh, oh, Jonas is never going to see his baby, but these top, top guys, a, if you live in Europe, it's much easier, just generally, even if you're a classics rider, because you like the Belgians are like sleeping at their houses and then racing the classics during the day. But Roglic, if you think of it, he doesn't do that many races. He's away from his family for the Grand Tours. He probably does two a year. But then he just has like a condo up in the Alps, like the high French Alps, and can just train from there. And the team lets you do that. I, I know Ineos and when it was Sky, they were a little bit more restrictive, like they'd want you in Mallorca or in the Canary Islands at the team hotel, no family. You don't even get to call your family, you know, super strict old school like that. But Yumbo seems to be a more progressive writer experience first team. And they offer a ton of ancillary support as far as making you more aerodynamic. And I mean, the fact that they have wout, we knew he wasn't sprinting on the Champs-Élysées because he wasn't wearing the skin suit that, you know, they won't even let him participate in sprints without the skin suit. Um, that, that shows like an, an insane level of detail to aerodynamics. Whoa. Say more about that. Yeah. Cause if, if like every sprint stage that he was, every stage he was trying to win this year, he was in the skin suit. And then if you noticed he rolled out for the final stage with the shorts on with the Jersey. So you knew right then he wasn't sprinting for the win because I guess they've just deduced that. I, I guess it kind of makes sense. You're moving so fast in a bunch sprint that even the slightest aerodynamic advantage helps. I've always thought skin suits were kind of a scam because I, I know some of the materials are really fast, but it is really the hem between your jersey and your shorts causing that much dirty air? I mean, it probably is. If, if they're doing it, there's probably a reason they're doing it. Uh, I'll have to, I can't remember which pro writer it is, but there's a pro writer, I believe on, um, Gosh, what team is he on? He's on uh, 
he's on Froome's team. He has a YouTube channel. I'll find it and we'll talk about it in a, in a future episode. But he talked about just that attention to detail with skin suits, over shoes, the right gloves. I don't know if you noticed with Jonas, but he always had the arrow gloves on the entire yeah. the entire race, which you would think don't make a big difference. But when tunnel testing show, it does actually make uh, quite a difference. You, I mean, on the other hand, you could think about Tade and his signature tufts, which are not likely to be aerodynamic. He never wears an aero helmet. He just would go out and destroy people all the time until he didn't. Um, but yeah, like those small, small pieces of kit, attention to detail, having everything prepared, probably things like uh, I'm a big fan of the Tool Gawande book, The Checklist Manifesto, the idea being that you turn complex processes into simple a, a list of simple binary actions so that everyone involved in the process knows exactly what they have to do when i would imagine that early sky was probably following those types of protocols and we saw this year clearly like things are falling apart over there they just don't have that level of attention to detail and the new king of comedy in the peloton garant thomas has turned his vest gate into a charity fundraiser. He's had a good laugh. He's made me laugh a few times, which is great, but it just bespeaks a lack of professionalism and a lack of attention to detail. And now Yumbo have, have shown that they have it. And yeah. And maybe it's not sustainable. I mean, maybe Ineos just eventually burn themselves out. Like I know that they had a, it was, a, they tried to make it a codified rule employment lawyers will laugh at this that you can't have a significant other and work for the team because they wanted you that focused to the team that's obviously not sustainable in in any way um so maybe they just it was so intense that attention to detail was burning so bright that it eventually just burned everyone out and then now they're leaving vests on people for time trials and things like that i mean oddly thomas had the he had an amazing ride. Um, it sounds funny because he finished eight minutes behind the leader. I thought the best Grand Tour of his career. He got like a little bit of flack in the Guardian for just like, oh, they're sticking to this old school strategy and he's getting blown out of the water. It's like, well, what else do you want him to do? The guy is is cooking time trials as fast as he can. Uh, like in that final time trial, he finished, what, only five seconds behind Pogacar? And then he's... Right. Of course, he's going to get dropped in the mountain. Like, he's not faster in the mountains. Like, there's very little you can do at the tour in a situation like that. I thought he did about as good as he could do. Um, but yeah, the team around him was, does seem to be falling apart. Uh, I'm not quite sure what's going on there. And I wonder, like, how, how long is Jim Ratcliffe going to continue to pump money into this thing? Like, if they're not winning the tour, I think they have podiumed on the tour every year. Well, except 2014 and 2020. So two years, there's two years where they weren't on the podium, but every year other than that, between 2012 and 2022, they finish on the podium at the tour. That's impressive. Like nothing to scoff at. But I do wonder their whole existence is built around winning the Tour de France. If they're no longer winning the tour, the C stick around as a sponsor. I'm not quite sure what his aims are, but yeah, and I know some of the other teams are struggling, like the Mercedes F1 team. Looks like it won't be winning championships for at least the short term. Maybe he has a long time horizon, then, and this doesn't worry him. But I do wonder about that. Like, is their funding going to be in trouble at some point if they can't deliver Tour de France wins? 
It very well could be. And I know you'd mentioned this, Spencer. We might as well talk about it. But the doping accusations that are flying around because they get they're always flying around, right? You can't have professional cycling. You can't have somebody win the tour without the questions coming up. What do you make of, I think, kind of like the alpha and the omega of this tour at the beginning? Preceding the tour, we had the Bahrain, Team Bahrain accusations. We had the raids at the riders and team staffs, homes. At the end of the race, we actually have no forward momentum. It's it's shocking and sad, actually, to see news reports about that continue to talk about what was found in the raid, talking about, oh, there were 445 pills and there are 445 white pills and 700 brown pills of unknown (laughs) substances. Like looking at the photos, I don't know, maybe they're doping products. They could be also like could be Sudafed or Imodium AD. I have no idea. Bathroom. If you raided my bathroom, you'd find 500 pills of unknown substances. Like it is a misleading statement because it sounds nefarious, but it's like, well, yeah, I guess if you look at any pill, if it doesn't have a name on it, it's kind of an unknown substance. Yeah, so we've got that. And then the Omega at the end, finally in the final press conference, we Jonas gets the question, why should we believe you? Yeah, the question needs to be asked at the same time. To, to what end? And is anyone out there going deep and doing investigative work to try to figure out like what's actually going on? Are they waiting to see if there's another raid that yields information? I'm, I'm just not sure what the end game is there with, with that line of question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So tell, tell us why you're doping. It, it, it's yeah. So Kate, Kate Wagner, who's actually been a guest on this podcast, very good journalist. She asked the first question. I thought it was, it was somewhat fair. It was like, basically like Tade Pagachar was faced with doping questions every day during his tour reign you seem not to elicit the same suspicion. Why is that? The uncomfortable answer and probably something Jonas can't say is because I'm from Northern Europe and Tad is from Eastern Europe. So you're always going to be more suspicious of him. If you're from, if you're Vina Kurov and you're from Central Asia, just don't even, don't even try to, uh, to not get doping questions, but that's probably the answer. It is interesting that I don't know. I, I guess like it's I guess the questions are merited because of past doping scandals in the sport and it's good people are skeptical. But you know, I was even noticing in the New York Times, it was like a story about why should we believe Jonas Vindegaard? And then below it, like US athletes destroy competition at track and field championships, and everyone's breaking a world record every time they step on a track. Like that is highly suspicious. This is crazy. And then it's there's no presumption that anyone in that sport is cheating. And you would certainly never ask Sydney McLaughlin right after she wins the 400 meter hurdles and breaks her own world record for the umpteenth time. Why should we believe you? So it, it is odd to me that like, why is Jonas getting that question? And then Sydney McLaughlin isn't getting that question. I don't quite understand why one's appropriate and one isn't. Yeah, I think I think it's totally fine and an appropriate question to ask of Jonas or any professional cyclist. At the same time, you're what answer are you going to get? I mean, unless you're out there doing <laughs> yeah. hardcore investigative reporting, and I'm thinking about Reed Albergati and Vanessa O'Connell, who wrote the book Wheelman about Armstrong systemic doping practices within the postal and discovery teams, and the kind of you know also like the Balco scandal. What kind of reporting actually, and what kind of institutional support from media companies does it take for people to? 
dig really deep and unearth these doping scandals. And I also think about for the average fan, like let's say somebody watching the Netflix tour documentary, whenever it drops, does this change their impression of the sport? I know how I feel about it and how this impacts my enjoyment of professional cycling, which is it doesn't at all. And I have a long and complex relationship with this question as a journalist myself. But at this point in time, I'm just enjoying the race and it's entertaining to me. The moral dimensions of this are, you know, another aspect that we could talk about, but I'm highly entertained. I think that this was the best Tour de France I've ever watched. Whatever happens from here, would I be shocked if there were some doping scandal? Not really. Is it going to change the enjoyment that I had of watching this race? For me, the answer is no. What about you, Spencer? No, it is definitely a fine line. Um, as far as, as far as the question, it is kind of an odd question because, you know, what answer are you going to get? I think Wout Van Aert called it a shit question and refused to answer it. Probably the more, maybe the, the better answer would just say, well, I've never been suspected of doping and there's no evidence that I've done it. So I think that's unfair or I don't know, something like that. Um, I do think, you know, think of like peak, uh, peak postal years or peak sky years when it's so tilted and you just feel like something's not quite right and it's ruining the competition. Like when Lance is winning tours by seven minutes, that's when it's, you know, that's when I do kind of care about doping. Cause I'm like, ah, it's like perverting the, the level playing field. Whatever is going on now, it feels pretty level to me. Um, obviously, Yumbo is having great performances, but they have generationally great riders on that team. If anything, people should be complaining about their like awesome vibes that allow great riders to want to just ride for the team. Um, that's their big advantage. It's not the fact that they're physically sus- like. You know, these aren't suspect performances. Wow, Bernard's been a superstar since he was like 12. Like, it makes sense that he would be destroying people. Um, so, yeah, I mean, whatever is going on, like, it does not. I, I'm when I'm watching Tade and Jonas and Wout go up Otacom, I'm not like, ooh, this is, uh, I, I'm, I'm not enjoying this because maybe they're doping. Um, it would only, it did bother me when Chris Room was putting like five minutes into people on like plunged a bit plunged in a Belfield like six stages into a tour and then the tour was over. Um, and maybe they weren't cheating. I don't know. I don't really have an answer to that, but I know at, at that point I'm like, I don't know, is this really a level playing field? Like if they are cheating, it's completely ruining the race. That's where it becomes a problem in, in my opinion. And where, I don't know, the, the UCI should focus their efforts, like just keep it level. You might never get rid of doping entirely, but just make it so hard to dope egregiously that the band becomes smaller and smaller and smaller and you can have like equal performances. Yeah. To take that from performance, for example, definitely from a sporting slash moral point of view, that's highly problematic. If doping was happening, the bigger injury perhaps, or not the bigger injury, but it it just made the race not fun to watch. It's not fun to watch when someone's cheating to such a degree that they're just freaking destroying everyone else. Yeah, like and I Ricardo think- Rico would be a good example of that. Where so he's like, cool, he's like hipster cool now. You're like, well, that's a bummer when he's going twice the speed of everyone else. Like, that's not fun to watch. No, it's not fun to watch. I mean, watching Pantani climb. I've been going back and watching some old footage of Pantani's big climbing moments, and wow, they're. <laughs> 
I mean, watching it today, it's uh, it's like watching an unlimited funny car at a drag strip. There's something wild and entertaining about it, but it's freakish. It's not natural, and it kind of ruined the enjoyment of viewing the race when those kinds of performances were going down. And I'm glad you brought up the Cobra. Ricardo Rico, today a gelato shop owner, I believe. Um, but yeah, like some of the most freakish climbing performances like we've ever seen, similar to um, professional cycling in Portugal today. Yeah, Portugal is a great example where it just gets so... And, and the Portuguese riders suffer because of it. No one will sign... Like Shuala made his Portuguese, but he got signed really, really, really young. No one will sign a Portuguese rider over 22, 23 because the, the suspicion's so high. Um, with I guess like with Rico or Froome, people might say like, well, these guys are climbing faster than, than they were. It's like, well, like in some cases that might be true, but there's so many people now that are a talented i think we just have a level of talent we didn't have in the 2010 to 2019 or maybe even you think carlos sastro won the tour in 2008 like would anyone in their right mind argue that sastro could have won this tour where the depth of talent is just like so 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 deep now and that the training as you say like the the training information's out there there's like no real secrets anymore. Like, you know, it's like, do you have no people like I won't post on Strava because I don't want people to know my training. It's like no one, there's nothing to be kept secret anymore. Like we all know how to be really, really, really fast. And there's the thing itself. There is the matter of whether doping happens or not. I think the most likely answer is you pointed out, Spencer. Yeah, there's probably doping happening. Are they being caught? Doesn't seem like it right now. Is it creating a totally inequitable competitive situation? Doesn't seem to be. That doesn't mean that it's okay. There are other aspects of this that have a real impact on the race as well. And I think it's the specter of doping enables a level of social engineering that can actually impact the outcome of the race through creating psychological pressure on riders, on teams, and creating, you know, like with Bahrain, as we saw. And we've gotten into all the suspicions around um, the person who runs that team on previous episodes. But having that hanging over your head going into the race, having nothing come of it, you know, that's that can have like a very real impact on the race. And it seems like it's we saw this last year as well with Bahrain, where it seems like someone can just pick up the phone who has a problem and doesn't have actionable real information about whether doping is happening or not swat another team or another individual there's a raid it's psychologically destabilizing it makes it difficult to focus like you're not going to refine your focus after enduring something like that and you know it, it just opens the door to all kinds of different things that can impact the outcome of the race and we talked about this with the climate protesters as well, because I don't recall which rider was injured in a wreck as a consequence of the climate protesters, but just cycling is unique in that there's an interaction between fans and the world in a way that they can actually impact the outcome of the race, which is unusual in professional sport. Doping accusations are not the same thing, but they are another vector where something other than what's happening on the field of play, I think has a real significant outcome 
on the race at different moments. So that's just like a whole other dimension other than is it actually happening or not? It's what can people do with the suspicion of doping to perhaps create more favorable outcomes for certain riders or teams? Yeah, it definitely feels like it's being weaponized against smaller teams. Like Yumbo is not getting raided. It's not happening. Even if someone, if we could call them in and they're not going to raid them, but Archaea could, Bahrain could. And something to just, you mentioned that there's not a lot of tests or people aren't getting caught. I think as I understand it, you know, I could be wrong. I, I, pretty sure I've talked to like multiple anti-doping professionals and like they, the biological passport. So like, A, we know hematocrits are lower than they were in the Bionna Reese era. No one's showing up with a 60 hematocrit and getting away with it, but they, they test you a lot and you have a biological passport. If you go outside the band of what they think is a believable number, you know, if your numbers are jumping around, they used to try to ban you and say, well, you can't race because you you're violating the passport. But they kept losing in court. Like, well, this is not sufficient evidence to keep someone from working, essentially. So they've stopped. Like, you'll never know. Someone could could have a wild biological passport. We would never find out about it. But what they do is then they start testing you all the time. Um, I don't know if you remember this, where like Serena Williams was getting tested all the time. Um, And then she stopped refusing. She started refusing to take the test. Um, that should trigger a positive test because the, and then she was like complaining, like, well, I'm getting tested all the time. This isn't fair. It's like, well, you're getting tested all the time because there's reason to believe that your numbers are suspicious and they're trying to catch you, or they're at least trying to, de- de- to deter you from doping. Um, she got away with it because she could just call in the president of the tennis association or whatever. But I think the ideas with professional cyclists now is you, if you start returning questionable passport numbers, they hit you really hard with random random tests at your house and the idea is it causes you to cool down a little bit. So I, even though we're not seeing people get like quote unquote caught, I think that's actually been pretty effective with not maybe not stopping doping, but cooling a little bit and keeping people from having unbelievable performances for you know an extended period of time. There you have it. And before, I mean, we, we are, we are going long here, long, the long bomb. Um, just before we go Tour de France, 2023 odds, Jonas Vindegaard's a negative favorite, which is crazy because he could crash in the off season and not even make it to the tour. That does happen. Teddy Pogacar's second favorite. You get positive. You can almost double your more than double your money. If you bet on him. Primoz Roglic, Remco Evanapol, Jai Henley, Garrett Thomas. Who's your pick for the 2023 Tour de France? And it can be a rider that's not the people I just named. Remco will never win the Tour. Remco will never win the Tour of Switzerland. (laughs) (laughs) Tade will win. Tade will win. So you think he comes back and wins? Yes. What do you think? I I think that would be fun. You know, I'm like, just big picture. We probably should have started with this. I'm glad Tade lost because... It's not fun when you get the same rider winning all the time. Like, think how much more fun the Froome years would have been if he gets beat, you know, in the third attempt. And you just get like a, it, it's a more natural cycle of, of fandom and it builds excitement about the race that you don't get if, this, if it's the same rider winning all the time. So, you know, the only thing, I think Tade could come back and win. Two things about that. Jonas never looked under pressure. I think Jonas is a better time trialist and at times he's a better climber. That's a hurdle. Um, it's not beyond Tade. Tade's so good. He can crack that. 
does he do the zero? That, that's kind of my big question. I, I've heard rumors Ugh. that he's going to try to do the zero tour double, which we know that will not work. That's like not possible. Yeah. No, that's like opening an Eastern front. You can't do that. And when <laughs> you can't do that and win the tour, it's just that doesn't work in the, in the total cycling era. If, okay. So I'm going to modify my statement. If Tade elects to race the Giro, number one, something's going to happen and he's going to end up not winning the Giro. And then he's definitely not going to win the tour. If he elects just to ride the tour de France, he will win the tour de France. The reason I'm picking him as the winner is because I don't think Yumbo can keep the band happy at this point in time. I think there are too many competing interests and conflicts of interest within that team. And I mean, we could have, we could have, and did say this at the outset of the 2022 tour, it seemed impossible that they could juggle the number of aspirations and egos that they had going into this tour. They did it once. I don't think it's possible to do it twice. What do you think, Spencer? And you're the band expert. I think you have interviewed Daft Punk without the helmets on. Um, I think you, there's something true. There's truth to your statement. I think at some point the goodwill runs out and it's just too hard to keep it together. Jonas strike. And this is another Britishism. I mean, some of these British writers I really respect and really like it. Just, it's funny how they talk about cycling to me sometimes where it's like Jonas doesn't strike me as a multiple time tour de France winner. It's like, well, that's a nonsense statement. If you really unpack it, it doesn't matter how Jonas strikes you. Chris Froome might not have struck you as a multiple time tour winner and he won a bunch of tours. So it's really just about is Jonas physically capable of doing it, physically and mentally capable of doing it. Um, it does seem difficult for me to believe if Tade focuses on winning an, another tour that he doesn't win next year. Um, one wild card is I heard Primos. I mean, this is to your point. Primos to Enios is the rumor now next year. Not coming back to Yumbo because he doesn't want to play second fiddle to Jonas. The problem is we absolutely know Enios would get Primos Roglic and then have him work for Adam Yates. <laughs> That's the only uh, issue there where if Primos goes to that team, he never sees a leadership position ever again. Yeah, and let's remember Jonas doesn't win the 2022 tour without Primos working for him, softening up Tade with those attacks and counterattacks, and he doesn't win without Wout. So can Wout stay happy at Yumbo? What does he want to do in the future? Does Primos stay? Does he go? TBD. TBD. I Yeah, it is TBD. Is that actually true, though? Like, if let's say he doesn't drop him on stage 11 and he does drop him on Otacom, uh, I'll have to do the math on this later today. Does does Jonas still win the tour, assuming Tade wins the Galibier stage and never gets dropped? Certainly, if Jonas is never able to drop Tade Pogacar, he doesn't win this tour because he loses it on time bonuses, and they're roughly equal in the time trial. So, I mean, that could be the path to success for Tade next year. Sit on his wheel, out-sprint him, Make the time trials a push, and that's how you win it. Just like Primoz Roglic in the 2020 Vuelta España. I appreciated that Tade didn't make any excuse for what happened on the day when he lost the big chunk of time. I also think that in the next week or two, we're going to find out what actually happened. You know, perhaps he had an off day. I do think that there was some kind of error in hydration or in particular fueling. Yeah, and I think that I actually have a lot of admiration for him as uh from a sportsmanship point of view that he just said yeah 
I lost today. He didn't say this is the reason. He didn't blame anybody on his team. He didn't say it was this specific factor because I think that that would have disparaged his team. It would have potentially diminished their confidence. I think it would have bolstered the confidence of their competitors. And that's just not the kind of writer he is. That's why he's a true champion. And that's why I strongly believe Tade for president. Tade will win in 2023. 2020, 2024? Or no, the tw- wait. 2024 presidential election in the U.S.? Let's wait and see. I, 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 wouldn't, and see. I wouldn't rule it out. I'd probably vote for him. Yeah. Um, no, I think you're right. I think the team, I think the team biffed that. They, they didn't. As we saw with the water complaint, I think that was a little window. A, we weren't supposed to hear that. I think that's a little window into some nutrition issues they they were having over there. They're just trying to keep him lean. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't put it past him. Water bloats you. It's going to add weight. You don't want that on the climbs. No water. You Sorry, won't have the right sensations if you yeah, take in water or nutrition on this climb, Tade. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Andrew. Um, I hope everyone enjoyed this super long episode. Um, Just start doling it out slowly to yourself for the next few weeks because I'm retreating high, high to the Italian Dolomites and won't be back on until the Vuelta España in mid-August. But thanks, Andrew, for joining us during this tour. It was so much fun. I think everyone enjoyed listening and we'll see you hopefully in the Vuelta. We'll have to talk about this. See you all soon. All right. Bye.